You're listening to KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m., and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Good evening. I'm Claudio Mendoza. At the height of the pandemic, farm workers in the Central Valley and along the Central Coast were hit hard by COVID-19. The California Report covers the effort in Salinas to vaccinate farm workers en masse. After a brief look at regional news and weather, we'll listen to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week, followed by Bravehearts. This week is part three of a conversation with the Interfaith Food Ministry's Executive and Development Directors. We close with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. California's Workplace Safety Board is expected to ease mask rules for fully vaccinated employees, but it likely won't become official for at least a few more weeks. Cal OSHA's Standards Board heard from both business leaders and the public during a contentious meeting last night before deciding that its new workplace standards would align with mask rules issued by state and federal health officials. The new proposal is expected to be presented at a board meeting next week and could go into effect as early as June 28th. The meeting came just hours after state health officials released their mask rules for when California officially reopens next Tuesday. Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley says for the most part, people who are fully vaccinated can resume normal activities without a mask. But there are some exceptions. California residents who are vaccinated will still need to wear masks on public transit, in schools from kindergarten to 12th grade, and in child care centers. They'll also need to use face coverings in health care facilities prisons, jails, and homeless shelters. And people who are not fully vaccinated will have to wear masks in all indoor public settings. Well, early in the pandemic, COVID-19 infections among farm workers in the Central Valley and along the Central Coast were rampant. Now, those regions have become a focal point for vaccinations. Kate Samini of the Salinas Californian and CalMatters has been following this story. Earlier, we spoke about how farm worker protections have evolved in Monterey County. Well, Monterey County um, in general was leading the pack in workplace safety when it came to COVID-19. It was the first county to pass a resolution about how to keep farm workers safe at work, Uh, you know, what social distancing was going to look like, how much PPE was allotted, et cetera. And since then, Monterey County has seen really significant cases of COVID-19 among farm workers, but a lot of that is because in large part, the story of COVID-19 in Monterey County is intricately tied to the story of overcrowded housing. Contact tracing on the part of the Monterey County Health Department, you know, from what I learned over the course of the pandemic, was it really found that farm workers who contacted COVID-19 were sickened by others living in their homes. Um, In general, uh, most farm workers in Monterey County live on the east side of Salinas, um, called the Alisal. And Oftentimes, you'll find farm workers, you know, 20 people crowded into a three-bedroom home. It's a great environment for viruses to thrive. So what is the picture like now? I mean, what is the infrastructure that's in place that's been built around trying to get farm workers vaccinated in mass? Um, You know, a lot of that goes to um, regular clinics that Monterey County is holding. They've held specific ones uh, in partnership with, for example, uh, Natividad Hospital, Um, specifically for farm workers. And I know that uh, Grower Shipper uh, of Central California has 
held every week at least one vaccination clinic, um, working with growers to make sure that farm workers get maybe a, a half a day off or a full day off paid so that they can go and get vaccinated. And uh, as of, I believe, two weeks ago, they had vaccinated nearly 30,000 farm workers in Monterey County against COVID-19. Is there a way you can put that number in context for us? Is that a fairly significant number relative to the total? That is a significant number. The closest total that we have of farm workers in our region comes from the Salinas and Pajaro Valleys farm worker study of 2018, which places the number of farm workers in both the Salinas and Pajaro Valley, but you know, I offhand I'm told the majority live in Salinas, at about 94,000. So 30,000 vaccinated simply by grower shipper alone, that's a pretty decent total. Is this effort fairly uniform? I mean, it sounds like employers are a really big part of this. Are we seeing results across some of the larger employers in the region? You know, I know Diarigo Brothers has recently gotten a lot of attention for partnering with Grower Shipper to mass vaccinate um, its its farm workers. Uh, I believe Diarigo, which, um, you know, fun fact, um, owns the patent on Broccoli Rob and, you know, has been in the Salinas Valley for decades. They held the first max, mass vaccination of farm workers uh, in Monterey County. Um, and potentially in California, actually. It wasn't always um, smooth sailing for Diarigo. I, I do know that a story came out in the Atlantic, you know, last summer, I believe in July, that focused on issues that Diarigo had had with, you know, getting its, its farm workers appropriately PPE'd up in the fields. But it seems that Monterey County uh, in general, the, the farm workers have turned a corner. All right, Kate Samini, reporter with the Salinas Californian and CalMatters, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, in the wake of the recent mass shooting at a light rail yard in San Jose, Mayor Sam Licardo has introduced a new plan that would charge gun owners new fees and require liability insurance for firearms. But as KQED's Julia McAvoy reports, one violence prevention expert says the proposals are missing the point. Mass shootings get our attention, but there have already been 20 other homicides in San Jose so far this year. And Oakland, Los Angeles, and San Diego have also seen increases. But instead of starting from scratch with new ordinances, Shawnee Bugs with UC Davis's Violence Prevention Research Program says we should be focusing on what we know works. Gun violence restraining orders, preventing straw purchases, educating the community to engage mental health providers before a crisis occurs. Those are preventative measures that have been shown to work in other places. In addition to the liability insurance, the new fees Licardo wants to charge would be used to help offset the tax costs of responding to gun-related injuries and deaths. Mayor Licardo's effort to get gun owners to help pay the societal costs of gun violence is valiant, says Bugs, but she says if the mayor is looking to reduce the harm from shootings, the city should invest more resources into communities where most of that violence is happening in the first place. For the California Report. I'm Julia McAvoy. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. 
and personal capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, June 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. A new study from the University of California, Davis, and the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai confirms that surgical masks effectively reduce outgoing airborne particles from talking or coughing even after allowing for leakage around the edges of the mask. The results were published June 8th in Scientific Reports. Christopher Kappa, professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Davis and corresponding author on the paper, says the study shows that wearing masks and other face coverings can reduce the flow of airborne particles that are produced during breathing, talking, coughing, or sneezing, protecting others from viruses carried by those particles, such as SARS-CoV-2 and influenza. High-efficiency masks, such as N95 respirators, are designed to have a tight seal to the face, while surgical and most cloth face masks leave small gaps around the sides, which can be reduced when they are worn correctly. The researchers looked at particles flowing from these gaps by sitting volunteers in front of an instrument that counts airborne particles down to the size of half of a micron. The 12 volunteers read aloud or coughed with and without surgical masks of the type widely worn by the public, either with their mouths directly in front of the funnel of the particle counter, turned to the side, or with their head lowered or raised to count particles passing directly through the mask or leaking around the sides. Researchers found that wearing a mask while talking reduced particles directly through the mask by an average of 93%, from the bottom by 91%, the sides by 85%, and the top by 47%, although with substantial variability between individuals. They got similar results from coughing. Nevada County reported three new COVID-19 cases today for a total of 138 active cases, five of which are currently hospitalized. For regional weather, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly clear with a low around 46. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 74. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 33 degrees. Tomorrow will be mostly sunny with a high near 66. And in Woodland and Sacramento, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 51. Tomorrow, sunny and warm with a high near 81. Next, let's listen to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week, followed by Bravehearts. This week is part three of Betty Louise's conversation with Executive Director Phil Alonzo and Development Director Naomi Cabral. I'm Christina Abkarian, Marketing and Development Specialist at Hospitality House. 
Hospitality House is a year-round emergency homeless shelter for the general homeless community in Nevada County. And the needs of the shelter for this week are PPE masks and gloves, blankets and sheets twin size, new pillows, bottled water, bras all sizes, women's underwear sizes small, medium and large, men's underwear and boxers sizes medium, large and extra large, shampoo and conditioner travel size, men's and women's deodorant, travel bags, duffel bags and backpacks, Please drop off urgent items or mail them to Utah's Place located in Brunswick Basin, past the DMV at 1262 Sutton Way in Grass Valley. For a tax receipt, please ring the doorbell and wait for someone to come outside to assist you. We greatly appreciate the community's help. In the words of Utah Phillips, if we all stick together, we'll all get what we need. Thank you. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. Hello, everybody. We are going to jump right in to the story of the Interfaith Food Ministry with Phil Alonzo and Naomi Cabral. Naomi and, and others before her have done a great job of trying to simplify it as much as we can. And, and sometimes I think all of us in our own lives, you need someone to kind of keep you going and keep you accountable and, and help you through, you know, the step-by-step process when it's pretty complex. So, right. um, you know, it's, it's a really important part uh, of what we do. And, and Naomi nailed it on the head with, right now, there are extra generous benefits available to mm-hmm. people, whereas someone might have been pretty disappointed before with what the amount that they got. It's more generous now. Definitely. Um, We we could all use uh, any help we can get right now. And um, what we're finding is that a lot of people are getting their stimulus money. If you don't have to spend it on food, why spend it on food? Use it for something that's more important. Uh, Food is important, of course, but we have resources that will cover the food part. You know, you can catch up on those bills or you could get those many needed resources that you need for your family. And so it's a budgeting aspect is something that we want to convey to our recipients. Um, In addition to the CalFresh, um, I also do a lot of just the updating with the social media and the marketing of our services uh, to the community, the the partnerships that we work with. I highlight that so that people know who we work with. And really, we will work with anybody. And the reason we can do that is because we'll help anyone at any point point in their life that they're in, at any need that they're in, we can help them. Uh, Everybody needs food. 
So even if you need it for one day, if you need it for a week, if you need it for the year, we're, we'll, we got you. And so that makes it easy for us to partner with any kind of agency and help them in their own specific mission. Can you tell us your relationship with homeless people and how many you serve approximately? Yeah, absolutely. Last year in 2020, overall throughout the whole year, we served about 3,700 unique families so that's everybody, about 6% of that, or about 230 families, were what, what we deem as a, a specialty client, and we provide a specialty bag of groceries that is specifically designed for, for folks that might need to have the type of food that's just ready to eat. Because many of our homeless folks live out in the woods, and so they don't have uh, a way to cook on a stove or in a fridge, so we provide them the kind of food that they can eat, nutritious food that they can eat right away, and, they, and it's not going to spoil on them with minimal garbage that they have to throw out, you know, because uh, that's, that's important for them too. Uh, I know a lot of people think like, oh, they don't care. They're just, you know, doing this to our environment. It's, they do care. They don't want to have to have that burden either, and so we help them with that. We give them food that fits their specific lifestyle and their needs. What do you want people to know? The example that I wanted to touch on related yeah. to our involvement in homelessness, which I also is part of what I want people to know, um, and they really display our collaborative nature here as, as part of the solution and that we're experiencing as a community. And the first one is that many years ago, before me and Naomi's time, my predecessor and uh, the Grass Valley PD, there was community pressure from people that didn't want to see trash in the parks, concerned about fire safety and people cooking over campfires in the woods and all legitimate concerns. There was a lot of community pressure uh, to have law enforcement and us, you know, ask us to stop distributing food to homeless people. Oh. So if someone could not come and have a proof of address for us, then they would not be allowed to get food. Now, thankfully, our leadership compromised and pushed back and said, no, we don't, not, we're not going to do that. Here's what we're going to do instead. What do you think about this? And there was this whole collaborative process where that was the birth of this specialty bag and how it came about that recognizing that, okay, there's different types of needs out there in the community and we can't assume that everybody has a safe and easy way to cook food or a, a way to refrigerate food. And, and so what we did, we did the specialty bag program, certain types of food to people that, that didn't have cooking facilities. And then we also said that they could come every week. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. I'm thinking about the human impulse to name things and know the names of things. There's a mountain peak I see whenever I drive up over Donner Pass to Lake Tahoe. And every single time I say to myself, I wonder what that's called. 
I've been told its name, but just like the exact elevation of Donner Pass, which is over 7,000 feet and also a palindrome, giving me two of the four numbers, I can't seem to remember it. I used to name my cars, the red and white 69 VW bus that stalled out on the highway every time I drove to Vermont was called Alice. But subsequent rides devolved to the Dasher wagon and the planet Jetta. After I finally figured out that Volkswagens had to be repaired too often and Toyotas did not, I dropped the manufacturer's names too. One line of thought says naming things is a way to claim them. If you call it Castle Peak instead of Third Mountain on the left, you're more involved. And of course, if you name it after yourself or your favorite president, there's an assumption of possession. The land I live on, which is mostly owned by Bank of America, is unseated by the local native Nisanon tribe. I refer to it as the poem farm with mixed feelings, thinking I should learn the Nisanon name and also maybe give it back to them. Robert Haas, a poet I love, once wrote, Of all the laws that bind us to the past, the names of things are stubbornest. I can still remember how proud I was of learning to spell our street name when I was a kid, Divisadero. Between that and San Francisco, I felt glad to be from where I was from, so I knew how to spell those hard words early on. I thought it gave me an advantage in facing other life difficulties. Mind you, I was six. When I hear the street on the news, I can see it, a silver ribbon extending from the bay all the way to Market Street. It is mine, the way the whole city is mine, 53 years after we moved. The way California remained mine when I lived in Boston, Norway, and Chicago. But it's not that I own these places, it's that I belong to them. They own me, if you will. My skin wakes up in a primal way at the smell of eucalyptus cloaked in fog, or the cable cars chime, even in a stupid TV ad. Every lighthouse is the Alcatraz light hitting my bedroom window. As I write this, I can feel language receding and my senses coming forward. The names are meaningful to me, but it's the sensory response to where I am that carries real power. Because we're animals in the end. We managed without words for a long time, and that memory lives in our cells. The names of things may be stubbornest, as Haas says, but what we experience is most essential. Salt air, the sun on our faces, and the cries of whatever those birds are, the ones we don't know the names of, right where we're standing. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We get support from Hospice of the Foothills Gift and Thrift Stores, 
with four locations in Nevada City, Grass Valley, Penn Valley, also Rough and Ready. All proceeds support end-of-life care for patients and families. Information at hospiceofthefoothills.org and Heartwood Eatery, organic cafe on Commercial Street, Nevada City, offering a seasonal menu of organic salads, grain bowls, toasts, and nourishing tonics, featuring local farmers and producers. Heartwood Eatery is open 10 to 4, closed Mondays. Stay tuned. The Climate Report with Martin Webb is next, and at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! Thanks for listening. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Have a wonderful night.